So I, for one, forgot it was going to be warm today. And uh, that was a perfect example to not wear my tie, for perfect chance to not wear my tie, and, uh, but it was too late. But I did leave the jacket in the office, so thank you, thank you, Peter. Peter's really into the service today, so this is really going to be a good day. So uh, we're all very much uh, hopeful that... Uh, that uh, Boulder County will uh, significantly change what have been leftover requirements for crowd gatherings. Um, I had that experience this week of uh, entering a couple stores here in the area for the first time without my mask on, and it was quite liberating to walk around there like, a, like I used to go to stores. So we're looking forward to uh, potentially that being the reality uh, for us here as the, I guess, the, the most recent county mandates run through June 10. So, so we're waiting to see how that changes and, uh, and what we'll be able to do after that. So very hopeful that uh, this next round will mean singing at the first part of the service and other things like that. So uh, very much looking forward to that. This is a uh, <clears throat> particularly fun Sabbath for, uh, for Alicia and I. And uh, because we have a few extra people with us today, and uh, you're not allowed to come and not get called out, so I apologize. I should have apologized in advance. But my son Aaron is here. He's my third oldest son. Uh, so I got Gable, I got Aaron, and Alicia and Ariel and her dad are still on their way. They'll be here shortly. But then Aaron's girlfriend Marissa is here. And Marissa's parents are here. They've been on a trip out to California, and they are on their way back. They've already logged 4,000 miles in the car with just, I don't know, 1,800 to go. I mean, you're practically home, right? So, uh, so we're so thrilled that they've come by, and they're going to spend a little time with us. And uh, it, was a, it was a powerful incentive to focus on getting unpacked, knowing that they were coming. So I'm actually grateful for it. Because, you know how unpacking is, you're like, if you don't have a deadline, you're like, I could unpack or I could do something I like, and so you don't get it done. But because we knew this, it helped us stay focused and we're thrilled that we were able to get as much done as we were. So we're very glad to have them with us. Uh, they're from Southern. So Dennis Negron is uh, in the uh, administration at Southern Adventist University. Uh, no, if you're taking notes today, write this down. Never get up front and introduce someone and what they do unless you know exactly what it is. But I do that all the time. Remind me again exactly your role. Vice President for Student Development. That's what it is. So, uh, so we're very glad to have them here and uh, very glad to have them as friends. So, all right. Let's pray and let's jump in. Father in heaven... We ask your Holy Spirit be with us today uh, in, a, in a convicting way, because really at the core, deep conviction is going to take us further even than understanding. So Lord, help us. Help us to hear the Father's voice and the moving of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title for this week is Jesus... What are you doing? Part two. Because Jesus does stuff that doesn't make sense to us. And in so much 
that you can't even get it all into one part. you got to have two parts of it. And we're just in one chapter here. We're in John chapter 6. And in fact, we're in John chapter 6 for the third week. And to give you a context of what we talked about last Sabbath, <clears throat> really in truth, we broke part one into an A and a B. What took place was Jesus had just fed 5,000 men plus everybody else that was with them from a very humble gift given, five loaves and two fish. And we talked about that in the context of us as a congregation, how God will take even the humblest of gifts that we give him and turn them into amazing things, our skills, our treasure, all of these things that we contribute to the Lord, he will take and turn them into a blessing. But this was such an impressive event that when it was over, they said among themselves, this guy is the perfect king to accomplish everything we want. Now, do you hear the flaw? Do you hear the flaw in the reasoning? This is the problem. And, and I wish we were immune to it, but I don't think we are. We want Jesus to be the perfect king to accomplish everything we believe, we want, and need. So let's go back to them. The perfect king, he, he heals the sick, he raises the dead, he can provision a whole army with one sack lunch. This is like the perfect guy to lead you to war. To make you the great nation you believe you should be. To be the dominant power. To bring glory and blessing to Israel. To give you everything you want. So what did they do? The scripture is fascinating. It says they determined to take Jesus by force and make him king. They were going to grab him and march on Jerusalem. But Jesus wasn't having it. He dismisses the crowd and sends them home. And it seems the disciples must have been a part of this. This is a golden opportunity, Jesus. Do this now. You're never going to have another moment like this. You ever feel like that in your life? Have you ever felt like that in the church? Why doesn't Jesus just do this? But he won't do it that way. He dismisses the crowd because he knows that the kingdom he's building is not the kingdom they have in mind. So he dismisses the crowd. He, he misses the golden opportunity to become the king. And then he sends the disciples away. They get in the boat and they head across and the storm comes and they're tossed by the waves. So what a day they've had. They went from everything looking like it's about to work out <clears throat> to now looking like they're going to drown. But Jesus lets the trouble come upon them. And we talked last Sabbath about the reality that when we find ourselves in these scenarios, it feels like Jesus is missing an opportunity in our lives or in the lives of others, or that Jesus has allowed trouble, we try to figure it out, right? We try to figure out what Jesus is doing. But the problem is the answer to, to the the pain we feel inside does not lie in figuring out what Jesus should or will do. 
if we spend our lives focused on trying to figure out what Jesus should do or what Jesus will do, what it's going to cause in us is a chronic condition of serial crises of faith. Because every time he doesn't do what we think he should, our faith is at stake. And the reality is we will never figure it all out. Sometimes we'll understand, but we'll never figure out all of it. So what does our faith rest on? If it doesn't rest on supreme confidence that we know what Jesus will do, what does our faith rest on? I want to suggest to you, our faith rests on knowing who Jesus is, not on knowing what Jesus will do. Now, we could say we know what Jesus will do in the grand scheme, because we've been given that. But in terms of the day-to-day -day details, we don't know that. So we can't put our confidence in knowing exactly what he's going to do next in my life, how my life will go, how I will be blessed, what challenges I will face. There's no confidence there. Instead, our confidence has to be in who Jesus is. We're going to develop this idea today. This brings us to part two. What are you doing, Jesus? So we dealt with Jesus when he misses the golden opportunity, Jesus when he allows trouble, but now we're going to go one step further. When Jesus makes the trouble. John chapter 6. Beginning in verse 22, the next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now, I want to stop there for just a second and, and point out something interesting that Jesus does that is a lesson that I think we can take. The world wants to set your agenda. The world wants to come to you and ask you its questions. But you are not obligated to answer its questions. Do you see what Jesus does here? He does not answer their question. Their question is, how did you get here? But he just completely ignores the question. He says, you're looking for me because of what? Because I gave you food and you ate it. Okay? Jesus has a different agenda. He does not accept that it's his job to answer their questions. And that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Now, there are times when we want to be gracious and we want to meet people where they are and we want to answer their questions. But we cannot let the world set the church's agenda. God sets our agenda. Jesus leads the way. Now, it happens in the context of the world, but we can't get caught in the world's game because it will trap us. It will force us into corners. 
So sometimes it's better to just not answer the question. So that's what Jesus does here. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus is attempting to address the reality that caused them to come to him and want to make him king. Right now, when they look at Jesus, they are viewing him primarily, if not exclusively, as a means by which to get what they want. He said, you're not here because I did a miraculous sign. You're here because you got what you wanted and now you want more. Getting the loaves mattered more to them than what the giving of the loaves represented. Is this something that we do? Do we do this with Jesus sometimes? Do we really want what Jesus is all about, or are we mostly there for comfort, or for ease, or for pleasure, or for blessing? Are we a part of Jesus' team, or do we view ourselves as the target of Jesus' attention? Attend to me, attend to me, attend to me. Or are we, Lord, what can I do to be a part of your work? Let's go on, verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, doesn't that sound simple? Really? I thought it was Sabbath-keeping. I, uh, I, th I thought it was making sure that I washed my hands right. I thought it was, I thought it was, I thought it was. No, Jesus says the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. It sounds so simple, and in a sense it is simple, yet in, it is also a most profound and sometimes nearly impossible task that Jesus has assigned them, and by extension us as well. It seems simple. But it turns out it's about the hardest thing in the world to do. And in fact, it's the whole point of the book of John. John chapter 20, we've read this repeatedly. John chapter 20, verse 30 Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What is the work of God? To believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah, and by believing to have life in his name. Well, why is that so hard? Well, I'm not sure, but apparently it is. John chapter 1, verse 9 the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. You have one job. Believe in the one that God sent. But yet it's so hard. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. 
So the answer to all the craziness of this life, the ups, the downs, the hurts, the crazy and even tragic turns, lies not in figuring out what Jesus is doing in every crazy situation. It's not wrong to question. It's not wrong to try to understand. It's not wrong to cry out in pain. But for the hardest things, we rarely gain understanding. Have you learned that? For the hardest things, we rarely gain understanding. So where do we find an answer? What will it take for us to achieve the work that God has assigned us? Well, let's go on. Then they asked him, verse 28, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Do you see what they're going for? They're still going for make it impossible for me to not believe. But Jesus won't do that. You see, the problem with asking for a sign is that you always need one more. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty amazing what you did in my life last year, but I don't know. You always need one more. You always need one more. Verse 32. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. This is a fascinating echo of a previous conversation of Jesus. Do you catch it? Do you remember Jesus with the woman at the well? He talked about the living water. And her response was, again, in the moment, in the reality, in the present, in the physical. She said, sir, give me this water that I never have to come here again. Now he's talking about the bread of life. And their response is, sir, give us this bread that we never have to labor for bread again. But it's not the point, is it? Verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So profound what Jesus says. So powerful. Connecting the Father, the call of the Father, all of these pieces and the one who does the work of God, believes in the one who was sent, will be raised on that last day. So powerful, these words. But you know what? They can't hear it. They can't hear it. Verse 41, at this the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
They're grumbling about that. That was the first part. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. I'll just pause on that for just a second. No one can come to me unless the Father draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. That reminds me of the, of the encounter Jesus has with Peter when he says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You see, I'm convicted that every person who believes in Jesus, in who he is, who's doing this work that the Father demands, that you put your faith in the one that he sent, it is evidence of a miracle. Because no one comes unless they hear the call of the Father. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, I've never heard the voice of God. Well, I beg to differ with you. Because if you believe and have put your faith in Jesus, it is because the Father called you. And you heard his call. We're going to spend more on this subject in the future. We'll leave it for today. Let's go on. Verse 44. No one can come to me Unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, here's the thing about it. We know this language is metaphorical, don't we? We know the context of these words. We know when Jesus says, my my body I will give for the life of the world. We know that's a reference to the crucifixion. We're advantaged. See, not even the disciples knew the whole story at that point. All they know is Jesus is saying some really weird stuff. And if you don't know and are not familiar with these words already, but instead you're hearing it and taking it literally, these words are a bit unsettling. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And especially if you're a people who have rules about diet. It's a little uncomfortable. Verse 52, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's understandable. 
It's understandable why they were a little confused at this point. And here's the thing. Jesus, at this point, could so easily fix this by just saying, hey, chill, it's a metaphor, right? He could fix it. But he doesn't. Instead, he makes it worse. I mean, these are the people that just shortly before wanted to take him by force and make him king. And now he's saying things to upset them. And instead of fixing it, instead of making it better, he makes it worse. Verse 53. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. What in the world? Of all the things you weren't supposed to do as a Jew when it came to eating food, one of the things was you weren't allowed to eat food with the blood still in it, much less eat a human. And now instead of Jesus opening it up for them, he says, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And I don't know that he could have said anything more offensive than that. And he just keeps digging it deeper and deeper and deeper. What are you doing, Jesus? So back around the year 1992, let's go back that far, if you can, if you're that old, some of you know. Back around the year 1992, Alicia and I were living in Paducah, Kentucky. I was still a chemical engineer at that point, and she was teaching English at a uh, Baptist uh, elementary school academy and also teaching some music there. And we were in the midst of, uh, of a pretty significant spiritual revival in our lives that would lead ultimately to us abandoning what we had done before and going to seminary and heading down this road that's led us to here. But it was one evening, and, and, and we'd kind of settled into routine in the evening that uh, um, I would read to her, we were reading... Right then we were reading the Gospel of John, but I would read to her while she did things that worked out well for us. So she was cleaning. I think she was doing something under the sink in the kitchen. And I was reading her John chapter 6, and I read her that section and got to the end of it. And she pulled her head out from underneath the sink and said, that's kind of hard to hear. And then I read her the next verse. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I said, yeah, we're there. We're in this. 
what are you doing, Jesus? Why are you talking like this? It's a beautiful metaphor. Why are you making it ugly? So surely, after they say, on hearing this, many of his disciples, disciples, now not the 12, they'll be referenced as a separate group this time, but people who of their own will desired to follow Jesus, calling themselves his followers, his disciples, he has upset them. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? So surely, surely at this point Jesus fixes it, right? Surely now, when he finally realizes, oh, some of these people who want to believe are having a hard time with this. I better fix this. And it's not like he didn't know. Verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Isn't that a crazy comment? Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Jesus doesn't fix it. He keeps making it worse. And suddenly that crowd that just a couple days before wanted to make Jesus king faces a crisis. How can anyone believe that Jesus is the one God sent if he keeps saying crazy stuff like this and won't explain it. So what's the result? Verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. From the moment... When he had 5,000 who wanted to march on Jerusalem and make him king to maybe two days later and they're all gone. What are you doing, Jesus? There was one group left to address. Verse 67. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Last night I had a discussion with Dennis on this. We were talking a little bit about this text, and he was talking about this moment in these words of Jesus. He was an English professor before he became all fancy in administration and all that. Uh, he had hair back then. He pulled it out once he went into administration. That's how that goes. Anyway, we were talking about this, and he was saying the, the pathos and the passion he hears in those words of Jesus. And I love... I love that, that, that now he's done what he knew he had to do because he had a crowd around him that wanted to follow for the wrong reason. And that's not what his kingdom is going to be. I wonder, 
I wonder how much of the Christian world, I'm not going to say this room because I don't want it to be us at all. I want it to be none of us. But I wonder how much of the Christian world is following Jesus for the wrong reason. And what they need is a horrible encounter like this one to shake them out of their Christian nationalism and into the kingdom of God. But I can imagine Jesus knowing he had to do that, but maybe even fearful in this moment, have I lost it all? Are we back to zero? You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Verse 68. Note these words carefully. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now I want you to notice what he says. Notice both what he says and what he does not say. He doesn't say, oh no, Jesus, no problem, we get what you're saying. He doesn't say that, does he? You know why he doesn't say that? Because he doesn't know what he said either. He's like, what in the world just happened? Why are you talking like this? How are we supposed to eat your flesh? Well, that's going to take a little turn at the Last Supper, isn't it? Suddenly that's going to make a little more sense after the crucifixion, isn't it? But it's not time yet. So Peter doesn't say, yes, good, we get it, we're staying. That's not why they stayed, is it? They didn't stay because they understood. What he does say is this. Where else are we going to go? And I want to put that before you right now. And I think that's a question we can put before the world right now. Really? Which answer is it you're counting on? Which reality in the world is working so well for you right now? Who is it that has the answers? No? No one? Where else can we go? It's not like there's a world of options. Only you have the words of life. So here's the key as to why they stay. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, they're doing the work that God demanded. What is the work that God commanded us to do? Believe in the one he has sent. And so their testimony isn't, okay, we're staying because we get it. Nope. Their testimony is, no, we're staying because we're convinced you are who you say you are. And because we believe in you, we're going to follow you even when we don't understand. They stayed not because they understood what Jesus had said and done. They stayed because they had come to know who Jesus is. Now, we're going to have to spend one more week in this chapter because we're out of time today, and I haven't even talked about what Jesus is really saying. we got to do that. So we're going to come back next week, and we're going to talk about the amazing message that Jesus gives 
and what that means in our lives. But, but for today, we're focused on the words of verses 28 and 29. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. This is the work we must do. It sounds simple, but it is the most profound and potentially difficult thing you will ever do in your life to continue to believe in Jesus even when you don't understand. So I have this thing about faith. I have great faith when I can reasonably perceive a way in which the issue I'm praying about can work out. Great faith. But when I can't see how to get from here to here, eh, not so much. So you would be right in saying to me, you don't have much faith. Because who needs faith to believe that if I drop something, it'll fall to the floor? But you're going to need a little to believe it can come back from the floor to my hand. So this really is the challenge. To believe, even if we can't understand. The answer to all the craziness of this life, the ups and the downs and the hurts, and the crazy and even tragic turns, lies not in figuring out what Jesus is doing in every crazy situation. Now, it's not wrong to try to understand. It's not wrong to seek. It's not wrong to question. And it's not wrong to cry out in pain and to grieve and to process. These things are required. But for the hardest things, we rarely ever gain understanding. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. So what are the things so often not revealed by God? Well, here's a few. Answers to our questions, right? Even when Jesus was here, he didn't let them set the agenda. Explanations for things that happen in our lives. Reasons. So often these are not revealed. But here's what is revealed by God if you're willing to accept it. Who Jesus is. That's what he has revealed. He hasn't said, look, I'm going to make sense of everything. No, he said, here is Jesus, the one I've sent. Believe in him. For in him is life. That's what's revealed. And it's literally revealed, if you listen to the words of this passage, by the Father himself to every person who's open to hear it. By means of the Holy Spirit. So it's not about me arguing you into anything. It's not about me giving you the fullness of understanding and finally you're there. No, every one of us at the core will not be a part of this kingdom of God until we hold conviction in our heart through the Holy Spirit that Jesus is who he is 
regardless of what happens, regardless of how hard it is, regardless of the trials, and that if I put my faith and hope in him, he will bring me where I need to go. The answer to all this lies in each of us acknowledging who Jesus is and then determining to trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, Job said. So I don't really have answers beyond that. Your work and my work is to believe without ever giving up in Jesus, the one God has sent. Because only he has the words of life. And besides, where else are you going to go? Psalm 33, verse 20, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Let's pray. Father, it would help us sometimes if we could understand a little more. But help us not to pin our hopes and our trust on figuring things out. But instead to put our hope and our trust in Jesus. Who came that we might have life. In his name we pray. Amen.